Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Thanks, Gavin. Well, good evening. I was reminiscing that the first time I came to Charlottesville was in a medical helicopter. Back in 2010, I was happily riding my bike to work, and I looked over and saw a Jeep, and I was like, I bet I could take that Jeep out with my face. And uh, I couldn't. And so they scraped me off the road and put me in a helicopter and flew me down here, screwed my face back on. And so if you're looking up here tonight and saying, why does that guy look like that? This is the best that your medical system could do. (laughs) Unbelievable. My brothers say I should demand a refund, but I let it slide. That that actually all is true, except for the refund part and all that. It's actually always been a privilege of mine to come and speak over the years to groups of students at the University of Virginia. Uh, Thoughtful engagement always. I always learn something, and you guys always have good questions, and I'm looking forward to seeing what we get uh, into tonight together. I also am in an interesting situation where I'm about 15 years older than most of you. And so I have the experience of what's going to be happening in your life in the next one and a half decades, and it's going to be great. People talk about college as if it's like, oh, this is the best four years of your life or something. That's not even close to true. The years after what you're doing here have the potential to be some really exciting and really fulfilling years. And so enjoy what you have now, the privilege that it is to be here and to study, but don't for a moment think that life doesn't get more fascinating and more interesting on the other side of graduation and that there won't be unique opportunities for you to participate in that you can't even dream of right now. And so I want to give you that word of encouragement from 15 years farther down the trail. Get ready and look forward, lean into the future with excitement of what might be happening in your life. Now, starting back in 2013, I was speaking in a number of, for about a three-year stretch in a number of colleges and universities in the New England area. And people were saying at that time, you know, what are the big questions that are facing people? We had the rise of ISIS during that time. Um, uh, Postmodernism was the buzzword of the day. Everybody was focused on these concepts. And I said, you know what? Actually, the question of the future is how to deal with the epidemic of loneliness. And everybody's like, really? And I was like, yeah. And this is like social media is really ramping up and everybody's like, we're more connected than ever. And I was like, nope, it's not going to work. And actually in 2016, my wife and I made some significant changes in our lives and where we live based off of some of the things that I was thinking about there. In 2023, actually in November, NPR published an article of a survey that was done across 142 countries. And they asked the question, how close do you feel to people emotionally? How close do you feel to people emotionally? Who wants to guess what the number one country in the world as far as the percentage of people who felt close to someone else emotionally was? That's right, Mongolia. You didn't see it coming, did you? And so the headline was titled, What Makes Mongolia the Most Socially Connected Place? Maybe hashtag yurt life. Um, You know, yurt like the nomadic tent that herdsmen live in? Yeah. Hashtag yurt life. I haven't seen that one, but um, that's an interesting thing. Like, it should just make us pause for a minute to think that there is a sheep herder somewhere in Mongolia in a yurt who is probably more emotionally satisfied in life than your classmates are. Statistically. I mean, is that not, you're giggling, but it's kind of like a nervous giggle, right? 
because you sort of like, well, it's not just my classmates. We live in an odd place and an odd time. I want to outline for you, I think, historically how people have thought about how they belong to community. And in this, it's not a traditional sense. It's kind of like saying two plus two is four. That's not tradition. That's just how it is. For the vast majority of human history and across the world today, people live in frameworks of communities that connect them deeply to each other on at least four levels. And so this would be a much better talk if I had some cool slides here, but I'm going to ask you to use your imagination, or you can draw a little picture of this as we go along, and we'll refer to it. But we'll start with uh, the individual. How many of you have a first name? Yes. All right, great. So there's the individual. Think of this as like draw a little circle if you're taking notes and put individual in that. And then there's a bigger circle that goes around that that says family. So most of you not only have a first name, but you probably also, also have a family name. And then outside of that circle is some sort of subculture or community, um, something you're interested in, something that your family does in a different part of the world. Maybe you would call that your tribe, um, some group that's bigger than your family that is part of the, your identity. Outside of that ring, you get geography. The vast majority of humans have been identified with the place that they grew up in or the place that they lived and worked, and we still have a semblance of that, people will say. Where do you come from? Where were you born? Where does your family live? A sense of place and geography. And then all of that is circled by a bigger ring, which I'm going to call theology. And so if you start at the top down, you have a kind of a theological structure. Uh, you have a geography that you live in. You have a subculture that you're a part of. There's a family that you're embedded in. And then it comes down to you as an individual inside that core. And so the four degrees of belonging or connection that you feel are to your family, to your subculture, to the place that you live, the land that you live in, and then to some larger concept of who's in charge of the world and what's the big story that I'm actually a part of. What's the meta story at the top? Now, it's a very American way for us to look at this where we would start conceptualizing that from the individual level and then work our way back out. Most people probably start at the theological scale and then work their way down. And there are some interesting things that play in here, but there are also some serious issues. Serious issues like what happens if you take off that outer layer of theology and then your primary and largest identity becomes the land that you live in? This is where you either end up with nationalism or patriotism. What happens if you take geography out of the category of who you are and you suddenly say, we live in a time and a place where it doesn't really matter where I live, I can do my community quote online. And I want to make a case and I'm leaning into the conviction that actually if your community does not have a connection to geography, that it's not community, it's a group. A group, or an online group, an online community can't bring you soup when you're sick. That's a group. It's not a community. Traditionally and historically and across the world, communities are always based in geography. And that's part of what you have as a community here when you talk about the community of Chi Alpha. It works because you all live within a mile walk of each other. There's a place that your, your identity is rooted in here. Now, you also, um, well, we live in a time in which we're, we're, we're kind of slowly working our way through this idea that, well, maybe we don't actually need these things. Maybe we can peel off the theology. Maybe we can peel off the geography. Maybe we can peel off the community and, we, and the family I don't really need to be connected to. And it just comes down to me as the radical individual and there's something that's kind of heroic about that uh, in our minds, but the lived experience of that is rather miserable because we find that when we peel off all of these layers of the onion and we're left with just ourselves, that it turns out to be a lonely and an isolated place. 
the, the trick is, is that for all of human history, you, we've always needed community for education. I mean, you guys are here to get a great education, but part of the education of the past is like, how do I grow in character? What does it mean for me to become virtuous? What does it mean for me to learn how to love someone else or love one another? All of these foundational elements of what it means to be human, character, virtue, love, you can't do by yourself. They're all relational concepts and terms where you need other people to teach you how to do them well. This is one of the challenges and the ahas that you're going to have as you leave the university system is to recognize that the university is a phenomenal place to learn, but it's not the best place to ask and answer all questions. What class are you taking right now that is a good course on what it means to be a good husband? And it's an important question, but there probably isn't a course on that. So delight in what you have, but recognize that's not all that there is. You're going to need other people to learn what these things mean. The community around you also will help you identify the gifts that you have. That's another part in the value of being engaged with other people is there are things that you are good at that you don't know you're good at. And there are things that you think you're good at that you're not good at. And you also need the community to help you uh, understand that as well. It's part of how we get to know ourselves is by the people who we love around us that can point these things out. There also is a sense in which you will never feel like you're part of a community unless you're contributing to it. You can't be part of a community and only be receiving from it. You only feel deeply embedded in it when you see your role in it and how you participate in it and how you fit into it. And so we could go on and on and extolling the virtues of the concept of community. It's a total buzzword. Uh, it pops up everywhere. It, use, it gets used flippantly, whether you're starting an online anime group or a local farmer's market. I mean, community is everywhere. Um, but we know that it's good, but there are some reasons that I could honestly say that maybe you want to say, mm, sounds nice, but it's not worth it. Let's walk through how we maybe got to the point where we want to etch away all these other things and say, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own, and I'm going to be just a radical individual, and I can handle this on my own. The first one is, is you start looking at that theological structure around it and say, you know what, all the religious people that I have read about are either hypocrites, perverts, or frauds, and so I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm out of here. You could say, you know, the whole thing about geography, that sounds nice, but you don't know how miserable of a little town I come from. It doesn't even have a beach. Moving on. And then you get down to your subgroup. Well, I've seen more little communities and subgroups explode because you know what the problem with community is? They have people in them. And people are just irritating and annoying. And nobody's saying amen, but that happens. And then you're just like, I started out in that, and those people turned out not to be that great, and I'm out of here. That's a real thing. And then you get down to your family and you say, you know what, dad's busy playing golf, mom's on anxiety meds, and actually I feel like I'm supporting them more than they're supporting me, and why would I check in with them on a daily basis? I guess I'll do this on my own. That's all in the context of a progress that the philosophers have been talking about that we're in right now, of living in an age of subtraction stories, where we say, you know what, we used to think we needed Zeus in order to explain lightning, but now that we know how lightning works, we don't need Zeus, and we used to think that we didn't know how X, Y, and Z work, but science has explained that all, and so we're just chopping off these external things that we don't really need in order to understand the world well. That subtraction and deletion of meaning in our lives is couched and defined in terms of progress, and that's the narrative of our time. It can go on from there. The, the focus on the individual is actually a really good thing if we're talking about individual value. And so there's a sense in which you do get this from a Judeo-Christian way of thinking about the world, is that the individual, and you are special. 
uh, like your grandma told you. Uh, You're valuable, right, as an individual, but that doesn't mean that you were designed and created to function entirely as an individual. And we sometimes blur that distinction between individual value and our capacity to thrive as an individual. And then a lot of you, what did you spend the last 10 years of your life doing? Getting ready, you went to school to get ready to go to the University of Virginia. And basically, the last 10 years of your life have been like, have fun, study, get into good school, that's the plan. And that's also kind of new. It's not that long ago, even in my grandparents' generation, my grandpa started getting up at 5.30 in the morning and milking cows when he was nine years old. Because if he didn't, the family farm was in trouble. And so from the time that he was nine, he recognized and felt like his family needed him in order to survive, and his community needed him from a very young age. And so the concept of the teenager in our modern era is also a unique thing where we go through these years where we don't really know what the purpose of our life is. We're just kind of hanging out there, getting ready for the next thing, but those aren't formative years. And so we can jump on this and say, okay, there are all kinds of reasons that we would tear this apart, and here we are as lonely, isolated individuals who don't want to have anything to do with any of the rest of that, and I think I've appropriately described that and painted that as a pessimistic picture, and my work here is done. I'm ready to take some questions. No, I'm not going to leave you there. Um, How do we start putting something together on the other side of this to say, okay, well, what does it look like to put the pieces back together? And you're saying, okay, I'm at a Kai Alpha event, and uh, this is a Christian guy speaking. He should probably say something that sounds sort of spiritual. Uh, And let me warn you that if you think through this this onion that I've constructed, the individual, the family, the subculture, the geography, the theology, what we are tempted to do is say, okay, I don't have that in my life. I'll just build one. And we say, okay, you know, the way to do that is I'll be spiritual but not religious. I'll just pick out the things that I kind of like, get my horoscope figured out, buy the right crystals, and we'll get it all sorted out, get my palm read a couple times here and there, and all will be well. And I can do this spiritual-sounding thing that gives me some sort of feeling that I'm connecting with something bigger than myself, and I really like the idea that I can connect with something bigger than myself that doesn't demand anything out of me in return. I'll be spiritual but not religious. Spiritualism, in that sense, is just individualism repackaged. You're just doing your own thing that isn't a shared experience all over again. And I wouldn't speak on this so forcefully if I didn't see so many people run it to its logical conclusion and end up more depressed and sad than they were when they started out. And so there's a false hope of saying, well, I'll just sort this out starting at the individual and working my way out from there. There is a time here, and I think this is a hard thing to say because the, name, the word has such a bad connotation, but the word religion comes from a Latin word to re-ligament. What do your ligaments do? Your ligaments hold your bones together. And so to re-ligament is to say, how do I take all of these different pieces and form them and fit them together in one body? What holds them all together? And so the true concept of religion is a way of looking at the world where all the little pieces of our lives suddenly fit together in a unified whole that turns out to be something functional. And so the I'll be spiritual but not religious does not connect us to anything other than ourselves in a meaningful way. And therefore, may I suggest that religion isn't all bad. The philosopher and theologian J.J. Davis said something interesting. He said, well, if you wanted, you know, since we're getting into the religious language here, he said, if you wanted a working definition of salvation that works across all ways of seeing the world, you could say this, that salvation is when your true self is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. So salvation is when your true self is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. 
And that works for almost every religious system of the world and also a whole lot of systems that aren't religious. How is it that I, even if you're like, I'm going to live forever because I'm going to eat at Whole Foods my whole life. That's a, a way of thinking about properly engaging with reality and attaching yourself to it as an individual. So as Christians, we believe that ultimate reality is a personal, knowable, almighty, holy, loving God. And as an individual, what does it mean for my true self? Well, I'm made in the image of that God, and I'm built and constructed and desired to have relationship with that God. The affront to all of this is that it's the opposite of the concept that you can be the master of your own destiny. This is the offensiveness of Christ, is to say, when Jesus shows up on the scene and starts talking about what God wants for you and what God wants for the world, is that he doesn't let us start at the bottom with ourselves and then build out a theology around ourselves or build out a community around ourselves. In fact, he kind of eviscerates any um, hope that we would have of saying, I am the master of my own destiny, I am the center of the universe, and he helps us resist the temptation to say that I'll be my own little God and I'll build out reality around me. The problem is, is that when you construct your own reality, it's very hard to invite other people into it in a way that you can have a meaningful and shared experience in it. And so that fundamental tension that Christianity brings to us is to say that if you look at the idea of theology, geography, community, family, individual, our temptation is to start in the middle and to build out from there, but Jesus says, you can't do it. You're going to have to start on the outside with what God is doing, who's really in charge of the universe, submit yourself to that, and then all these other things will be added to you. It starts on the other end. And that's why you've probably heard Christians say some weird things, like, think about this phrase, I gave my life to the Lord. You ever heard somebody say that? Or I committed myself to the Lord, or I gave my life to Christ. What you're doing in that statement, when people are saying that, they're saying, I was tired of focusing on me and the me monster, and I recognized it was going nowhere fast, and I realized that I needed the person who knew how the universe really worked to help me organize my life. Ultimately, it's also not about you. It's about God. Christianity is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness and God being honored and glorified in your life. And so suddenly this whole thing shifts from being about me to being about what does God want from the world, but then has the surprising benefit to it that suddenly I feel the fullness and the pleasure of what it means to be fully human by making that move. It's counterintuitive, but that's part of the unique blessing of what Christ offers. My kids are at ages where they're reading a lot of Greek mythology and studying uh, all those wonderful and crazy stories that I don't know why we let children read about ripping heads off and all that stuff. But um, it's fascinating. And one of my children said to me the other day, Dad, who's the worst God? And I said, you are. We are our, uh, we are our, you got to get those four-year-olds in line. No, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, you, it's, it's true though. You are your own worst God. And you can see this in the life of other people easier sometimes than you can see it in your own life. I'm going to do it my way, Burger King style, right? It just doesn't, some of you, I hope nobody said Burger King. Well, in that question of like, which fast food would you eat for the rest of your life? Recognize that by answering that question, the rest of your life is like 45 days long. So just keep that in the back, in the back of your mind as you go there. But the fact of the matter is, is when we do it, I'll do it my way, that it not only makes us miserable and leaves us isolated, but it annoys and it hurts all the people around us. What happens when somebody says, I grew up in an abusive household? So when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts saying odd things that are backwards, like, hey, you're worried about this, and you're worried about this, and you have anxiety about this, and you're not sure what's going to happen here. Scrap it. 
says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And so there's a sense in which what the gospel of Jesus Christ starts saying is you either start with God and get it all, or you start with yourself and get none of it. And so the invitation there is a change in the focus of mind. Paul talks about salvation in the same level, and like Colossians 3 when he says, therefore set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. You start from there, start from the top. It gets a little bit weird because Jesus offers this uh, call for righteousness, for his goodness and his holiness to be attributed to us and our sin to be attributed to him and for him to put us back in proper relationship with ultimate reality, which includes not only our relationship with the Lord, but our relationship with other people and the relationship with the places that we live. And suddenly all of the pieces start to fall together for a meaningful, wholesome, not lonely life. And the only negative side effect is it'll probably get you killed. That's the story of the early church. You'll, you won't be lonely, but you'll probably die. Uh, how do you want to balance that out? Jesus doesn't call us or promise us simple things like comfort and security in the short term that we would love to have, but he does promise an adventure and promise to use us to change the world. The language starts getting pretty rich. Paul, writing in Romans, in the introduction to Romans, talks about people who belong to Christ. In Titus chapter 2, let me just read this for you. It's a great passage, and we focus on different parts of it at different times, but think about the ending here. For the grace of God, this is Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. All of that sounds very nice and theological, and you're like, okay, I've heard that before. Listen to the last sentence. And to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. The purpose of all of this, and it's beautiful, and we worship the Lord from it for it, but the purpose of what Christ is up to in the world is to purify for himself a people who are his very own, that's pretty deep community, who are eager to do what is good. And he goes on to say here, look, you are all messed up. Read Titus 3, the beginning sometime. Your lives were goofy. I'm getting one amen. Um, But this is what God has done because of his mercy. But the point of it all is, is we want to remember that when we talk about salvation and our religious experience, that your salvation, your relationship with the Lord is personal, but it's not individualistic. You weren't created to worship just by yourself. You were created to have functional relationships with other human beings and places. And God ordains the times and the places that we would live. And so there's something that's so much bigger to the concept of salvation, like, oh, hey, I got my ticket punched to heaven. It's also about what does God want to form in the communities around you that will continue to shape you in Christ's likeness so that you will serve the Lord and serve the neighbors and the others in the world in such a way that God is glorified by it all. And so the gospel fundamentally is an invitation in community, not just in relationship with God, but with other people and all that has been created. It's tough stuff. I confess that I am tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to come up with a good plan and I can build out wholesome community around me. But then Jesus says things like in Mark 10, 29, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, and with them persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's a tough thing that I'm laying before you here this evening, to say that there is a way Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But you get life and life to the full by starting at the big end of saying, what is it that God wants of me in the world? What is it that I actually am? What does it mean for me to be in proper relationship with ultimate reality? And I seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then he does what he wants with my life. Maybe he will embed you in one little nice uh, corner of the world, Wendell Berry style, for the next 50 years. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe he will grant you a large, multi-generational family to live in a yurt with sometime. I don't know. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. But we don't do it fundamentally for what's in it for us. We do it what's in it because it's our proper worship to the goodness of God and his mercy toward us. But then these other things do fall into place around us where we have a sense of commitment. I know a lot of people who don't have families, and the gospel is full of examples, and also in the Old Testament, this idea that God takes the lonely and places them in homes. The Christian church becomes community for people who don't have nearby biological families. The Christian church becomes a place of rest and refuge for people who don't have a place that is their own. The church puts me into a fellowship that I have resources scattered all throughout the world that regardless of where I travel, I can find another Christian who will let me sleep on their couch everywhere that I go. And it puts me in contact with a global family, which is odd because then it starts making sense of why the Bible refers to people as brothers and sisters in Christ. That actually the fundamental analogy of what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ is that we worship God as our Father and we refer to one another as brothers and sisters and not in a flippant kind of way, but in a real way. You've heard the phrase, uh, blood is thicker than water, right? So you're like, you're people, you're people. However, it is also true that the spirit is thicker than blood. And you will find deeper fellowship and communion with the people who profess and worship the same Heavenly Father, sometimes than you will with your own biological family and own genetic people. So the offer is very grand. The bar on some level is very high. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Doesn't sound great. But it is a vision of fullness in which we live our lives in a way that it means something profound and powerful and certainly is not intended for us to do as lonely people. One of your previous professors, Jonathan Haidt, I don't think he teaches here anymore, but once wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And in The Happiness Hypothesis, he said that fundamentally, people are searching for three things, a connection with something bigger than themselves, meaningful relationships with other people, and meaningful work. That's a wonderful analysis. That's a PhD in moral psychology. That also gets us all the way to Genesis chapter 2. There are another 1,100 verses, or another 1,100 chapters in the Bible talking about what that actually means to be lived out in that way. You were born for a relationship with God. It's not good for you to be alone, and you have meaningful work to do. I've always kind of thought, yeah, that's a good analysis. But then recently I was reading a book, and the guy was talking about actually his longing is for meaningful relationships with other people, for purposeful work, and for a home. And I thought, you know, that works too also, that we long for a place where we can rest, where we can be fully known and fully loved, 
where we have meaningful relationships with other people. And that too is something that is a promise of God for us in eternity. In my Father's house, you've heard Jesus say, there's a lot of space. And so the invitation into a Christian life is one into deep, rich, thick community. It has its problems because it has people in it. But they're people who are working in the same direction, which is to honor God with their lives and to make him known. And at the end of the day, hear well done and good and faithful servant from their heavenly father. I cannot stand here and look you in the face and say that if you choose to follow Jesus, it'll be all smiles and sunshine and rainbows. We heard that in the testimony. Can't promise you that. You know why? Jesus doesn't promise you that. He says things like, in this world you will have trouble, which is the secret code for, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> um, but he says, take heart, I have overcome. My peace I give you. Some people listen to Jesus and we're like, yep, I'm with you. It doesn't matter. I'll die with you. And other people are like, too hard. I'm out of here. And so I don't know where that puts you this evening as you're wrestling with who you are and how you fit into the world and how you engage with other people and how you think about the concepts of what it means to have a meaningful life connected to a story that is so much bigger than yours. But I hope that as God calls you and works on you that you would put in the effort to think through just because the, the outcome is so serious and so significant that it's worth thinking through. I see on the chair there you have a little uh, invitation to dinner for doubters. And I just want to end by saying one thing about doubt. Doubt never functions in isolation. You only doubt things if you believe something else is true. So if you said to me, I believe the moon is made of cheese, and I say, I doubt that, it means I believe something fundamentally different about the structure of the moon. If you're thinking about religious belief and the claims of Christ, and somebody presents them to you and you say, I doubt that, my question simply to you is, what do you believe? What's the other thing that you believe? You'll need to wrestle with that. And so I want to leave this message with these simple, challenging words of Jesus as he's calling us into a relationship with himself that enlivens our relationship with other people and gives us a mission and purpose in the world. But I also don't want to sugarcoat it for you by making you sound like, well, this is an easy thing. I check the box and onward I go with my life. My family has only been serving the Lord in the, what's now the United States for 325 years. And as I listen back through those stories and the tales of people who have given their lives to faithfully serve the Lord and the church, God does surprising things with people who are willing to trust him for their relationships, for their concept of home, for their concept of purpose, and the work that he has for them to do. I hope that you're at least curious and will begin to lean into that. And I've covered a lot of ground here and gone a lot of directions and kind of zigged and zagged, and so I'm glad that we now have a time for some questions. Um, I might start texting questions that number halfway through. Um, but Zach's going to come up and lead us in that, and I would love to hear what you're thinking, and hopefully you have the number. Does anybody need the number who wants it? We can repeat it, perhaps. Everybody's got it? Great. All right. Can we give Nathan a round of applause? Thank you, Nathan, for that. I think it's really cool to 
yeah, just be reminded of the importance of community. I think it's something we talk a lot about in Chi Alpha, but I know as people were walking in, there are a lot of new faces in this room that I have not seen before. And uh, I would assume we, they come from all different sorts of backgrounds. And so this may be a broad question that you might want to answer succinctly. Uh, but how, how can someone sitting here who may not be convinced of Christian theology, mm-hmm. that the Christian God is the representative of ultimate reality? You know, there were people who asked Jesus that specifically. Like, are you the one? Seriously? Um, and Jesus' response to them was, come and see, or come follow me. And so one of the neat things about Christian belief is that you don't need to do it blindly, that there, isn't a, uh, there aren't extra brownie points for conjuring up some kind of belief within yourself despite evidence or anything like that. It's very much an invitation to come and see. And there are people that followed Jesus for multiple years and still had trouble figuring out exactly what he was talking about, which should be encouraging for some of us. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fundamental difference there is that when Jesus says something like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, people would say, yeah, you know, it's kind of exclusive to say that this one religion is right in that category. And it's helpful for us to remember that a unique claim is not an arrogant claim. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so the goal of truth there is not neutral. The goal of truth is to put us in a proper relationship with God. And so it's not really like Christianity is, you know, Jesus is showing up with a different colored kickball saying, you know, choose the red one or the blue one. He's talking about a fundamentally different system of conceiving reality. And so the invitation of Jesus is to put us in a proper relationship with God, which isn't something that is uh, widely claimed in many other ways of thinking about reality. And so if that definition of salvation, of us longing to be connected meaningfully with something bigger than ourselves and with other people is true, then Jesus seems to be offering us something that's totally unique in that. And I think certainly you can't say, well, there's that fuzzy-faced guy who's sitting on a stool and said something one time, and so I believe it doesn't work like that. You need to lean into that conversation of, what would it mean for me to continue to explore this in a meaningful way? And I think you can also say, Lord, if you're real, I'd like to know about it. Um, and uh, don't put any parameters on that. But if there's a God who loves you, uh, he's capable of making himself known. That's great. How about this question? What advice do you have for people who may have been hurt by community, either religious or otherwise, and they may fear to reengage? I think that's a very real question, and I personally know a lot of people who fit in that category, and I can sympathize with that. I think, you know, you have this time here where you're, you have community together, and then at other points in your life, you'll have to join new communities and think through that. But it's really worth thinking through, what is the purpose of this community? Uh, and if it's like, oh, it's so this guy feels like he's in charge, or be, be brutally honest. Why does this community exist? And the communities that don't exist for a purpose bigger than themselves often turn into some sort of internal cannibalistic, not literally, but um, they, the, the inward focus of the group makes it almost unbearable because there's always uh, jockeying for power within that. And so, yes, absolutely. One of the gifts, it's not a gift, one of the interesting things about humans is we can take anything that's good and weaponize it. This is the story of, from the, from the beginning in Genesis, um, 
it'd be like if Zach gave me a stick as a walking stick and then I sharpened it and poked myself in the eye with it. I mean, that's like the human way of like taking a good thing and like how can I injure myself or somebody else with it? Um, and that's the, the brokenness of the world around us. So we can't say just because humans have weaponized something that therefore there isn't a good iteration of it. And so I go back personally and look and say, what did Jesus say about this? And start with what Jesus intended and go from there and recognize that oftentimes we do fall short of that but the ultimate goal, yeah, the misuse of something doesn't mean that it's not real. That's great. What would you say to a person who is content living an individualistic life and they're convinced that they're happy and don't need God? Yeah, so I think we all go through that phase. Um, I remember one day in high school eating a bowl of Cheerios and I was on this big rant about individualism and being my own man and all of this. And my grandpa was like, stop. He's like, you don't even know the name of the man who grew the vegetables that fed the man who mined the metal that made your spoon. And then went on to list like 500 other people that were involved in my bowl of Cheerios. Um, from the combine driver to the, you know, the truck driver. To, like, it, please, you're going to be your own man? You're going to be an individual and not engage with anybody else in the world? I mean, there's some Westerns like that maybe, but that's not real life. And so I think by and large we will find that that is a dry, powdery, dusty life at a certain point. Uh, there's an odd thing in, in some sections of American culture where we feel like we have to be radically independent in order to be valuable. And so the learning that your dependency is not an infringement on your dignity, rather it's the foundation of your identity. Who do you rely on around you? Do you rely on God? And if you rely on other people for who you are, and the meaning in your life, and you rely on the Lord for the meaning in your life, that doesn't make you less human. Actually, that's what makes you fully human, is when you can properly engage with the world around you. So when Jesus went off to solitary places to pray, it wasn't because he was a weakling, um, but because he recognized a proper relationship um, with the Lord. So that's a hard one that'll be harder for some of you to swallow than others, to say that I am, whether you like it or not, implicated in the lives of everybody around me, uh, there aren't really that many private acts that what you, a little bit of a butterfly effect there, that you will influence the world. Period. Whether it's for good or for evil, the jury's out. But you, it's, it, 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 there's almost an oxymoron to say there's the individual human that functions totally in isolation. So I don't think we're being intellectually honest if we think we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's great. So we kind of live in, I think we can all agree, in a overly connected, we're kind of saturated with this online connection world, whether it be social media or just other online platforms. What would you say helps, how does that, how does that cloud our ability to connect with one another and with God? Yeah, so um, two parts to that. The connection to one another will start there and then go to the with God version of that. It seems to me that it's easier to maintain relationships through a digital format than to build them. And, and I, I'd be interested to hear if that plays out in your life too, that maybe you have a friend you grew up together and now you live at different places, but you can keep up through um, different forms of media. Um, that's different. I think really ultimately the way that I like to see the digital engagement work is that the digital engagement drives me to an in-person meeting or event. And so it's wonderful as an advertisement. To me, it feels... Um, kind of lousily as an as a intimate form of communication. Um, my wife and I almost never text. It just seems like a subpar form of communication. 
Um, and so if it's all that you have, great, but let's not act like that's normal and that's what's best. Then in our relationship with the Lord, I think the, the digital media part of us really does whittle away at our attention span. And so our capacity to focus on something for three minutes is largely diminished. Um, so it gets, it gets hard to pray, maybe, if you can't focus in one direction in one way for a while. So the, I think there's, some, we, there's so much research out there, particularly on that question of how our brains are being reshaped and rewired by the technologies that we use. And so I think that's a... There's, let's quote an Amish guy in here. Imagine no mustache. Um, so there was a, an Amish bishop who said, he said, we're not adverse to change and we're not averse to technology, but we want to negotiate change. And before accepting any technology, we always ask the question, if we embrace this technology, what will it do to our community? And that actually is a profoundly wise question. And so you might just want to run that through your mental filter to say, before I download this app, before I get this widget, before I get this device, if I embrace this new form of technology, what will that do to our sense of community? Um, and so I think that's good, because you might say, this will really help us, or it might not. Um, that's probably a whole other talk on how we think about our digital lives and relationships, but those would be some things that I would set out as some parameters for getting started. That's great. I think we have time for one more question. Right. Uh, every religion has some sort of form of community. What makes Christianities different? Every religion has some sort of community. What makes Christianities different? So let's um, start at the top by acknowledging that one of the odd factors is that God moves first in his relationship with us. And oftentimes in a, in a religion of the world, you have some sort of system of, of an ideal of perfection, and you say, okay, I'm going to go through these steps, and I work my way up through them, and I check all the boxes, and I do this, and this, and this, and this, and I get up here, and at some point, God looks over at me and says, hey, Rittenhouse, great beard, you're perfect. Come on over. Um, and that, and that, so that's that. I, I, I build up. I, I complete the task. I follow through. I become uh, something worthy of God, and then he accepts me. And Christians have such a different view of the holiness of God that we say, that's ridiculous. You're not going to perfect yourself to make yourself worthy of God's love. And so the, the, the fundamental problem of, of sin and justice is how does that which is perfect come into relationship with that which is imperfect and still maintain its definition of perfection? You can't mix an impure solution into a pure solution and still have a pure solution. Like The only way that that would work is if that which is perfect could do something to that which is imperfect to perfect it. And so the, the fundamental difference in Christianity is that is the heart of the gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the perfect one moves first, and we respond to that expression of love. It's not that we perfect ourselves and make ourselves lovable. It's that God loved us first. And so that's, a, I think, a, a heavy burden that a lot of people bear is the desire to say, I have to make myself lovable, and I have to prove my own worth, and I have to justify my own existence. And that's just so upside down and backwards of a Christian way of looking at it, of saying, you're made in the image of God. You're loved by a God who wants you to know him and to feel and experience that love and that he's willing to move first towards us. So the way that the community is formed is by God moving first, but then the way that we stay in that community is out of a obedience based out of love for what has been done, not an obedience where we have to prove our fidelity in order to stay in. And, and that can feel very different if you're on the edge of, do I belong here, do I fit in, how do I continue to justify my role and my spot within this? Well, if you receive that as an adoption into a family, um, you can't 
fall out of it. It's something that God does for us. And so God holds the community together rather than we, us having to justify ourselves. And I would say, uh, well, there's a lot more to say there, but that's part of the beauty of it is that God moves first. Great. Thank you so much. Can we give him another hand? All right, let me pray to close this out. God, I just thank you for this evening, Lord. I thank you that we can step into a space like this and know that you are present. God, that you, God Almighty, King of the universe, have decided to to dwell in this room tonight, Lord. And I pray that you would be stirring things in our hearts, calling people back to faithfulness, introducing yourself for the first time to new people in this room. And so, Jesus, we, we, we praise you and we thank you for your presence. In your name, amen. Now, before you leave, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. There's something we do in Chi Alpha at the end of every MNL. We call it the benediction. And this comes from Deuteronomy, which is one of the first books of the Bible. And it is where we as a community get to bless you as you leave this place. And so if you're comfortable and you could put both hands out in front of you to receive this blessing before you go. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, well, thank you very much, and we'll see you guys at Dinner for Doubters. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.